welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the general surgical curriculum, and the topics we're going to be covering today are burns, blast injuries, and extremity compartment syndrome. And once again, we are joined by my new incredible co-host, Ben Finlay. Thanks for coming, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we're going to start off today by talking about burns. And burns are tissue damage sustained due to exposure to temperatures outside of the normal physiological range. The pathophysiology of burns is that there is a thermal injury that causes coagulative necrosis of the epidermis and variable depth of the dermis. Burns can be caused due to flames, electrical injuries, or also can be due to chemicals. And the depth of injury depends on the temperature, the type of heat and the duration of exposure to the skin. Burns cause both local and systemic effects. The local effects include the tissue damage and an inflammatory response. The systemic effects affect multiple organ systems and the more severe and more extensive the burn, the more severe the systemic effects are from the burn and the morbidity and mortality that the patient will experience. So the systems that are affected by burns include circulation. So in burns that are more than 15% of the total body surface area, patients will become hypovolemic due to fluid losses. The patient's metabolism is affected with burns putting them in a hypermetabolic state, which causes breakdown of muscle and protein. The patient's ability to regulate their temperature is affected, so they become hypothermic. They can develop renal failure due to hypovolemia. They can develop lung injury with ARDS, even in the absence of inhalation injury due to the systemic inflammatory response. They can develop immunosuppression and secondary infections due to the loss of the skin barrier. And they can get GI tract bacterial translocation as well due to the systemic inflammatory response. Burns can be conceptualised as existing in three zones. The first is the zone of coagulation, which is the necrotic area as a result of the burn itself. This is surrounded by, by a zone of stasis. And in this area, blood flow is reduced to the tissues and can progress to further tissue necrosis, thus extending the size of the burn. And the outermost zone is the zone of hyperemia, which is a zone of vasodilatation uh, in the tissues surrounding the burn. And this is viable tissue from which burn healing can begin. Using this model as a basis, the theory underlying burn resuscitation and treatment is uh, optimising the perfusion and, and decreasing the local inflammatory response within the zone of stasis to limit its conversion to necrosis, thus limiting the area of the burn. The other concept that's talked about in burns is the concept of there being two phases of injury, the early EBB phase, E-B-B, which is within 48 hours, 
And this is a phase where the patient has decreased cardiac output and blood flow to their organs and periphery due to loss of volume, myocardial depression, and increased systemic vascular resistance. In this phase, the management is to adequately fluid resuscitate the patient to improve their perfusion. And the potential complications patients may have during this phase is acute tubular necrosis or renal impairment, splanchnic ischemia, and shock. But also, if you over-resuscitate a patient, this can contribute to the development of compartment syndrome due to edema peripherally in, in the burn, abdominal hypertension, and pulmonary edema. And that over-resuscitation itself can contribute to losing that zone of stasis when we're talking about those three zones that Ben mentioned. And then the second phase of burns is the flow phase, also called the hypermetabolic or hyperdynamic phase, which is after 48 hours. And this is where the SIRS sort of syndrome really overtakes. So patients get fevers, they have increased protein catabolism, um, release of inflammatory mediators, and also secondary bacterial colonization of burns and infection. And the management in this phase is really all of those sort of next steps. So fluid repletion, making sure you're thinking about nutrition, replacing electrolytes, removing the eschar and debriding the burn before the infection takes hold, thinking about how you're going to close and manage those wounds and making sure that the patient's well analgesed and comfortable. So let's talk about burn first aid. And I found uh, a nice resource on the Vic Burns website with the slogan, call the burn and warm the patient as the principles in first aid. So these are to stop the burning process, cool the area with clean running water for at least 20 minutes, but you're balancing the prolonged cooling with a risk of hypothermia and then applying a clean dry dressing to cover the burn and cling wrap is often used for this. Then you need to keep the patient warm and get them to hospital. A burn is a trauma, so we should think about the management of burns within the EMST framework with a primary and secondary survey. We've already gone over these uh, in depth in previous episodes, but I think it's worth discussing specific points to think about within the primary survey when assessing burns. So starting with the missed handover that hopefully you'll get before the patient arrives, it's definitely worth knowing the mechanism and suspected injuries for the patient in the burn scenario. With respect to the airway, that is relevant if there's a burn in an enclosed space or there's a potential explosion or chance of inhalational injury. You want to assess for any signs of stridor or respiratory distress, a hoarse voice, facial burns or singeing of uh, eyebrows, swollen lips or face or a patient that's coughing up soot. This should prompt early intubation to secure the airway. If there's been a blast injury, the patient should be treated with spinal precautions. With regards to breathing, we need to assess whether or not there's any burns restricting the patient's respirations and if there's circumferential burns to the chest wall, the patient will require escherotomies. So there's a couple of other things that can affect the B or the breathing in your primary survey in a burns patient. The first is carbon monoxide poisoning. 
So if you have a patient who's had a burn in an enclosed space, such as a house fire, you have to be worried that they um, have inhaled carbon monoxide and Carbon monoxide has a really high affinity for hemoglobin, and so it can displace oxygen off hemoglobin and shifts the oxygen dissociation curve to the left. And so these patients, although they look like they have a normal SATs on the SATs probe, may actually have quite low um, oxygen saturations um, because it's all carbon monoxide. They describe patients with carbon monoxide poisoning as having a cherry red skin color. However, this is only if the carbon monoxide levels are extremely high and these patients are often unconscious. But with lesser levels of carbon monoxide poisoning, patients may be completely asymptomatic or only have headache or confusion. And the way we test for this is by sending off for direct measurement of carboxyhemoglobin. And if patients have levels that are above 10%, then they should be managed with 100% oxygen. And then the other thing that can affect breathing is a smoke inhalation injury, where products of combustion, such as carbon particles or toxic fumes, are inhaled down into the lungs and into the distal bronchioles, and they actually cause direct damage to the bronchioles and the cells um, lining those, causing cell sloughing and an inflammatory response. So patients develop almost an acute respiratory distress syndrome and pulmonary infiltrates and edema, which over the course of a day or two can be quite, uh, become quite severe. So that's the other thing to consider with breathing. So moving on to circulation now, we're going to think about all the usual things we think about with regards to circulation in trauma. However, when we're cannulating the patient, we should try and do that through an area of non-burnt skin if possible. Now, fluid resuscitation is really important, as we've previously alluded to, and there's a formula called the modified Parkland formula, which describes fluid resuscitation in burns. The modified Parkland formula for adults describes the amount of Hartman solution that should be given to the patient within 24 hours of the burn. And the formula is 3 to 4 mils of Hartman's per kilogram of body weight per percentage of burnt skin in the entire 24-hour period. You give half of that volume in the first 8 hours and then the remainder over 16 hours Fluid resuscitation in patients with burns should be goal-directed, so you should place a urinary catheter and titrate resuscitation to their urine output. And in an adult, this is 0.5 to 1 mil per kilo per hour. So the next part of our primary survey is disability and assessing the patient's GCS and looking at their pupils. And then in terms of exposure... For burns, you want to perform a full and systematic assessment of the patient's entire body and skin, as well as obviously looking for other potential injuries as part of your EMST assessment. You want to remove any clothing because leaving clothing on, especially if it's got chemicals on it, can continue the burns process. And if no first aid has happened and it's under three hours from the time of the injury, then you should apply first aid as we've described Then you're going to cover the burns, usually with cling film, which will help with pain relief and also um, with the fluid losses. To complete your primary survey, you get a chest X-ray and a pelvic X-ray depending on the mechanism. And patients with large burns, more than 20% of the total body surface area or vomiting or abdominal distension should have a nasogastric tube placed and consider giving tetanus if that's not up to date.
So let's move on to talking about the assessment of burns. And when we're assessing burns, we need to assess the area of burnt skin in addition to the depth of burns. Depending on the mechanism and the location, there's likely to be a mix of uh, different burn types. So it's important to document this uh, as accurately as possible because this will determine your ongoing management in terms of operative management and resuscitation. When we're assessing burn depth, depth of burn can be classified as either superficial, partial thickness, deep partial thickness, or full thickness burns. Superficial burns I like to think of like sunburn, and it appears just like a sunburn with superficial erythema, brisk capillary return, and perhaps some minor blistering. Because the nerve endings aren't damaged, superficial burns are exquisitely painful. So partial thickness burns can be divided into superficial and deep partial thickness burns. Superficial partial thickness burns appear moist or red with broken blisters. They're also painful and have brisk capillary return. Deep partial thickness burns appear more mottled with sluggish capillary return and may have a moist white slough appearance. Because the burn is into the deep dermis, these are often painless. Full thickness burns extend the full thickness of the skin as per their name, and because of this, they are a painless burn that appear dry with charred whitish appearance and absent capillary return. In practice, the assessment of burns can be difficult and over the course of the patient's initial stay in hospital burns may progress. So often the assessment of burns is repeated within the first 48 hours to see uh, what's actually happening. And if there's blisters and things on top of the burns, I've found they don't look that bad, but when you take them to theatre for a burn scrub and take the blisters off, you can assess that they're actually much deeper underneath. So what you see in the emergency department isn't necessarily what your final assessment might be. So let's move on to talking about assessment of burns area. And first up, I just want to say that superficial burns aren't included in the total body surface area of a burn. We're only looking at partial thickness and full thickness burns here. There's a couple of different ways we can assess burns area. In an adult, there's the rule of nines. And in children, there's different charts that are called Lund and Browder charts that estimate body surface area based on the child's stage of development. So it's important to get the child's age and use the corresponding chart. A good rule uh, is that the surface area of a patient's palm is 1% of their total body surface area. In adults, the rule of nines is a good thing to remember for burns assessment. This breaks the body down into several areas with corresponding uh, surface areas as a multiple of nine. So the head in its entirety is 9%. Each arm is 9% total body surface area. The back is 18%. Chest is 18%. And each leg is 18%. To take us to 100%, the perineum is uh, 1%. So management of burns after your EMST 
primary assessment and resuscitation includes local management of the burn itself. So for deeper burns, so more than superficial burns, surgery is fundamental to getting the wound to heal, reducing scarring and making sure that the patient has an acceptable cosmetic outcome. Superficial burns will heal on their own. Superficial partial thickness burns still have quite a lot of the dermis intact, so they will heal themselves in about 14 days with minimal scarring, although there may be a color match defect. But you still need to make sure that that burn is given the best possible environment in which to heal properly. So reducing infection, making sure that any dead tissue is removed and that it has an adequate dressing. For deep partial thickness burns, these burns have lost a lot of the dermis and so they will have a variable degree of healing um, depending on where in the body the burn actually happened and the thickness of the burn and the healing can take up to three weeks. And there is a moderate risk of scarring for these burns. So often these burns are managed with a combination of excision and grafting. And for deep dermal burns or full thickness burns, there's no dermis intact, so no cells in which the skin will regenerate. So these will heal over time, but with significant scarring and a high chance of um, hypertrophic scarring and contractures that can lead to long-term sequelae and poor function for the patient. So these wounds are typically managed with excision and grafting. So the initial management of a burn is what's commonly called a burns scrub. And this should be done quite early after the burn, almost within the resuscitation period, definitely within the first 24 to 48 hours. And the goal of a burn scrub is to remove any burnt and dead skin, enable adequate assessment of the wound and application of adequate dressings. You can also manage concomitant injuries at the same time. The typical procedure for a burn scrub is making sure that the theatre is warmed so that the patient doesn't become hypothermic, clipping the skin of any hair, washing the wounds with a warmed antiseptic solution like chlorhexidine, injecting subdermal normal saline with one in a thousand adrenaline to reduce blood loss from the burns because during a burn scrub you want to get down to healthy bleeding tissue and if there's a large area you can get a lot of blood loss. You may want to put tourniquets on limbs if possible. And then to scrub off any blisters or loose skin for burns that are deeper, the description is typically sort of a tangential excision, which can be done at the time of the burn scrub or on a secondary procedure using either a handheld electric or mechanical dermatome to excise layers of the burn down to healthy bleeding dermis. Or there's other equipment such as a VersaJet, which uses a high-powered water jet and suction to excise layers of uh, skin down to healthy tissue. And then you want to cover the wounds with an appropriate dressing, which will depend a little bit on your institution, but I've seen things like Acticoat um, used before, which can be left on for a number of days and also has antimicrobial properties. So if after a good scrub you decide that a burn is partial thickness and likely to heal without grafting, you can just dress it with an appropriate dressing. If after the scrub you think that this is a full thickness or deep partial thickness burn, it's going to require some kind of closure with most likely a 
split thickness skin graft, but other things like allografts, xenografts, or temporizing biological matrices uh, may be used for this. It's really important to do early excision of the burn. It was actually a female surgeon that described this back in the 70s, so much better outcomes with early excision of burns. And the idea is that there's quite an inflammatory reaction or response to the eschar, and that contributes to the systemic inflammatory response to the burn, as well as delayed excision resulting in higher rates of sepsis and infection of the burns and delayed wound healing resulting obviously in worse scarring, hypertrophic scars and reduced function in the longer term. And so the idea is that you want to decrease the rates of bacterial contamination and SERS response by removing all of the dead tissue. In terms of the definitive grafting procedure, it's in our operative nose how to do a skin graft. So Ben, would you like to take us through how you might do that? All right, so let's talk about taking a split thickness skin graft. In your preoperative preparation, it's important to consent the patient appropriately. Uh, And I think one of the key parts of consent is that there's a risk of donor site morbidity and chronic pain from this, in addition to graft failure, which may necessitate further operations. Split thickness skin grafts also have a suboptimal cosmetic appearance, particularly if you're meshing the graft. I think there's a lot of different ways that split thickness skin grafts are done by uh, different surgeons, but I'll talk you through how I perform mine. So I need to select a site to harvest the graft from, and often that's the anterolateral thigh. So I shave that area and prepare it for harvest. I measure the graft site and mark out an appropriate size donor site on the patient's thigh with a ruler and pen. I then infiltrate local anaesthetic to reduce blood loss and pain. Often this can be done under sedation, but if it's a burn scrub, the patient will usually be under general anaesthetic. I use an an air dermatome of the appropriate width to harvest the graft. When I'm harvesting the graft, I use liquid paraffin for lubrication on the skin and have my assistant apply counter-traction to keep the skin taut. It's important to keep a firm, constant pressure with an angle of 30 to 45 degrees on the dermatome to the skin to harvest the graft. Once the graft has been harvested, I use Metzenbaum scissors to remove it completely from the donor site and have my assistant place pressure to minimise blood loss. I then put the graft onto a sheet of perspex and fenestrate the graft or put it through the mesher. Then take my graft and pop it onto the wound to be grafted. I ensure there's good contact between the graft and the wound bed and then inset the graft with uh, Vicryl Rapid sutures and apply an appropriate dressing. I really like using vac dressings where I can to keep my graft Uh, in place. However, that's not always practical or appropriate. Uh, If I can't apply a vac, I'll pop some gelinet and paraffin uh, with a a pressure dressing and leave it immobilised and dressed for five days, after which I perform a graft check. The pitfall in harvesting a split skin graft with an air dermatome is you have to make sure that the thickness is appropriate because otherwise you'll take a full thickness skin graft. 
So important to check that it's about the width of the thickness of a scalpel. The other pitfall is when you are moving the graft off the patient, flipping it over, and then not knowing which side is the uh, epidermis and which side is the dermis. So I usually do a little check pattern on the skin so that I don't fall into that mistake. That's a good idea. Just briefly, we'll talk a little bit about some of the other procedures that might be required for burns that are in our operative nose. The first of these is escherotomy, which is basically a fancy name for cutting through the skin only in patients who have circumferential deep burns. These burns can occur on the limbs or around the torso and due to a combination of the skin rigidity due to the burn and secondary edema into the subcutaneous tissues, this can cause a compartment syndrome which can be limb-threatening or reduce um, the patient's ability to breathe. So escherotomies are required to release the skin, escher, and allow um, that constriction to be released. It's worth looking up some pictures of where you do these incisions because there's some pretty predefined locations for where to do the incisions. And if you're going to do this in the emergency department or not in theatre, just make sure that you have a scalpel. If you can get diathermy, that's really handy. Have some um, artery clips and some ties in case you come across superficial vessels. Um, and also I found the silver nitrate sticks very helpful with this in the past when I didn't have diathermy to deal with some bleeding, which you're likely to encounter from the skin edges. Essentially, you prep the skin with an antibacterial and you want to try to cut through the burnt skin. And on the limbs, I like to think of it as the path of the ulnar nerve down the medial side of the arm the path of the radial nerve down the lateral aspect of the arm. For the legs, laterally you're following the path of the common perineal nerve and the short saphenous vein, and medially you're following the path of the long saphenous vein. And on the chest, there's different incisions you can do, but usually it's a, a vertical incision on either side of the chest, just lateral to the mid-clavicular line, and then a transverse incision at about the level of the eighth costal cartilage. Patients with major burns should be managed in a major burn centre in the same way patients with polytrauma should be managed at a trauma centre. Burn surgery is a very subspecialised area and in a lot of states performed mainly by plastic surgeons. It's important to remember that burns care is also a multidisciplinary affair with burns nurses physiotherapists and occupational therapists, all very important. Burns patients need comprehensive long-term follow-up for care of donor sites, care of the burns, monitoring for complications and contractures which may require revision surgery and compression garments in the early stages after burns treatment are important to minimise scarring. Psychological input is often required as well. There are some transfer guidelines that are in the EMST if you're in a country or peripheral hospital about when to transfer a patient to a specialty unit. So this includes partial thickness burns more than 10% of the total body surface area, burns that involve the face, hands, feet, genitalia or major joints, full thickness burns in any age group, electrical burns and lightning injuries, which we're going to be talking about in a minute chemical burns, patients with associated inhalation injuries, 
patients with severe comorbidities that may complicate their burns recovery and children with burns. So we just wanted to briefly talk about electrical burns and the specific considerations that come with these. Electrical burns are due to an electrical current passing through a patient, which can happen at home or at workplaces where there can be much higher voltage or even with lightning strikes. And high voltage electrical injuries are considered as more than a thousand volts, which luckily home electrical circuits are not that high. And the specific considerations are that the passage of the electricity through the patient often gives you a contact burn on the skin where the entrance and exit point are, but there's often much more significant internal damage that you can't see through the path that that electrical current passed through the patient. So specifically, this can cause clots in blood vessels and damage to nerves It can cause damage to muscles, causing rhabdomyolysis and release of myoglobin into the circulation, which requires management with fluid resuscitation to avoid um, kidney failure. Patients can develop compartment syndrome due to these uh, injuries to the muscles and require fasciotomies. They can get issues with cardiac dysrhythmias due to the electrical current, and patients should have ECG monitoring and a troponin sent as a minimum, and if there's any abnormality seen, may need longer-term cardiac monitoring as an inpatient echoes and cardiology input. And then in addition, the electrical current can cause muscle spasm, which can cause significant musculoskeletal injuries, such as posterior shoulder dislocations, compression fractures of the spine and patients can also be thrown away from the electrical current and have a um, trauma because of that. So a few different things to think about if a patient's coming with an electrical burn compared to a flame burn. And then just briefly to finish this off with chemical burns, we've talked about this a bit before in the esophageal caustic and acidic injuries podcast episode and interestingly it's a similar pathophysiology so for acid burns the buzzwords just to remind us are coagulative necrosis and for alkaline injuries it's liquefactive necrosis and same for the esophagus alkaline injuries can be much more severe than acidic injuries And the management really is removing the chemical. So if there's um, powders and to brush them away and then also to irrigate the skin with warmed water for 20 to 30 minutes and even longer for alkaline injuries because the burn will continue um, even though the alkaline product has been removed. And then once the extent of the burn has been identified, then the management is the same um, as for flame burns. And the other things we should think about with all burns patients are considering nutrition. So if patients have more than 20% of their total body surface area involved, they're going to be in a catabolic state. So they may need nutritional supplementation, ulcer prophylaxis, VTE prophylaxis, pressure care. And Ben alluded to this earlier in terms of if the intravenous access is through burnt skin, if there's no other option, then the skin can swell and dislodge IV lines, so watching out for that. And the same with um, if the patient's intubated, the ET tube can become displaced with the severe swelling. So making sure that the tube is secure and that you're constantly checking that the tracky tape isn't causing pressure areas for that patient. (music) 
Before we move on to blast injuries, we'll take a little segue to talk about frostbite because we came across a previous question on frostbite the other day. Frostbite is a type of thermal injury, but obviously not a heat injury, but a cold injury. And the pathophysiology of frostbite is that when body is exposed to intense cold, you get vasoconstriction of the peripheral circulation so that heat and blood is um, routed to the core tissues. And the commonly affected peripheral tissues include the distal extremities, digits, nose and ears. And the cold and vasoconstriction leads to ice crystal formation in the tissues, causing injury to the cell membrane and also endothelial damage to the vessels. Patients get microvascular occlusion because of the slow flow state. They get microthrombi forming. And all of these things contribute to tissue ischemia. And they can also get a secondary reperfusion injury after the digits are rewarmed. There is a classification system for frostbite, as there is with everything, which splits up frostbite into first, second, third, and fourth degree. First degree is just hyperemia and edema without any necrosis of the skin. Second degree is where there is also hyperemia and edema, but there's blisters. Third degree is full thickness tissue necrosis with hemorrhagic vesicles. And fourth degree is where there's full thickness necrosis, but involving deeper structures such as muscle or bone. And the management of frostbite is not to rewarm the patient if there's a risk of refreezing, so making sure you get them out of the cold environment, removing any constricting clothing, keeping the patient warm and getting them to drink warm fluids, and you want to place the injured part in circulating water at about 40 degrees. And you want to keep it in there until it becomes pink again and perfusion has returned, which usually takes 20 to 30 minutes. And this is going to be extremely painful for the patient, so make sure they've got good analgesia. The patient may also have hypothermia concurrently, so you need to think about whether the patient needs passive or active central rewarming, so whether they just need blankets in a warm environment or whether they need more active warming like warmed intravenous solutions, warm packs in the axilla and groins, or even circulatory bypass in extreme cases. And if there's extensive tissue damage, you need to monitor for reperfusion syndrome. In the longer term, you need to be thinking about preventing infection, avoiding opening uninfected vesicles, which is a little different from the heat burns where we do debride off the vesicles, so you leave them intact, and keeping the area elevated. And you basically want to wait even a couple of weeks for the areas to completely demarcate so you can see the difference between the perfused tissues and the necrotic tissues. And once it's clearly demarcated, then you can debride and deal with the dead tissue as required. So Ben is going to take us through blast injuries now. Blast injuries are physiological and anatomical insult to the human body caused by a explosion. And a blast wave is defined as an overpressure shock wave caused by high-order explosives. Blast injuries combine mechanisms of blunt trauma, penetrating trauma, and barotrauma, and they're described in five components. These are primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, and quinary. So primary blast injuries are the injuries due to the blast pressure wave itself. 
This change in pressure mostly affects airfield organs that are at risk of rupture due to this rapid change in pressure. These are things like rupture of the tympanic membranes, blast lung, GI tract perforation, ocular injuries, and also concussion. Secondary blast injuries are those due to debris from the device and the environment. Sometimes in blast injuries, shrapnel or shards of metal have been included in the explosive device to increase the lethality of the explosion. Otherwise, environmental objects like rocks or um, shards of glass can be sent flying and cause lacerations and soft tissue wounds. These can also cause penetrating injuries. Tertiary blast injuries are due to displacement of the victim or displacement of large objects onto the victim. So these are things such as crush injuries, traumatic amputations and blunt trauma. Quaternary injuries are due to other explosive products and these are injuries such as burns and inhalational injuries. Quinary injuries aren't described everywhere when talking about blast injuries, but uh, what I've read is that these are due to post-detonation environmental contaminants, such as uh, environmental bacteria causing sepsis or the sequelae of radiation exposure. I found it difficult to remember this classification. So the keywords that I remember are that a primary blast injury is the barrow trauma, Secondary is from projectiles. Tertiary is from displacement or crush injuries. Quaternary is burns, asphyxia or toxic inhalations. So basically all other injuries caused by the explosives. And then queenery are basically exposure to unconventional materials. hope that helps a little bit. I mentioned blast lung, and I just want to spend a minute or so talking about this because it was the subject of a recent exam question. Blast lung injury results from tissue disruption at the capillary alveolar interface, which causes pulmonary edema, pneumothorax, parenchymal hemorrhage, and air embolism from alveolovenous fistulae. It's a clinical diagnosis based on hypoxia, respiratory distress, and bilateral lung infiltrates on chest X-ray. And the infiltrates are really pathognomonic in the setting of a patient being subject to a blast injury. Similar to ARDS, these can worsen with resuscitation and time. But management of blast lung includes avoidance of positive pressure ventilation, minimising PEEP and judicious fluid resuscitation, all carried out in the intensive care setting. There was a recent Trainees Day talk specifically on blast injury, which was uh, really useful, and I'd recommend that to all of you. What was specifically discussed in a couple of slides was the burden of soft tissue injuries in blast injury patients, and uh, often these are very extensive. The principles of management of blast injury soft tissue wounds are that these should all be treated as highly contaminated wounds, and principles of management are debridement of uh, devitalised tissue and removal of foreign bodies back to healthy tissue, thorough irrigation, obtaining hemostasis, and leaving these wounds open initially and going back for a relook before doing anything definitive. So some of the specific injuries that Ben's mentioned that can happen due to the blast wave are 
rupture of the tympanic membrane. So patients should have this examined with an otoscope. Small perforations can be managed just with topical antibiotics, but an ENT surgeon may need to be consulted for more extensive injuries. For intra-abdominal injuries, the range of injuries that can occur range from mural hematoma to full thickness bowel wall disruption or perforation. And the common points of injury are the ileocecal junction and the colon. And we would manage these like we talked about in our previous episode for hollow viscous injury management. Solid organ injuries can also occur due to the blast or due to the other mechanisms we've talked about, such as crush injuries or the patient themselves being thrown and suffering a blunt trauma. Eye injuries can also occur due to transfer of energy to the eye, and this can cause rupture of the globe, retinitis, and hyphemia. And for these, you should consult ophthalmology and make sure you do an adequate eye assessment. Patients can also get facial fractures around the air-filled sinuses and concussion or brain injury, as we've also mentioned. So the last topic we want to cover today which doesn't really fit in, but we decided we wanted to talk about anyway, is extremity compartment syndrome. So compartment syndrome is where there's an increase in the pressure within an osteofascial space, causing decreased perfusion of the muscle and nerves within that compartment. And in trauma, there's a number of different situations that increase the risk of a patient developing compartment syndrome. So we need to have a really high index of suspicion in certain injury patterns to make sure that we're not missing compartment syndrome as untreated can lead to irreversible damage to the patient function of the limb. So extremity fractures, whether open or closed, crush injuries, arterial injuries and post-reperfusion, which comes up a little bit in our vascular module, If patients have long-term compression of a limb, such as due to a drug overdose, unwitnessed stroke or a trauma where they've been left to lie for a long period of time, and also in some burns, they can develop compartment syndrome. The pathophysiology of compartment syndrome is that the pressure within the compartment is increased until the intramuscular arteriolar pressures are exceeded. And this means that blood isn't entering capillaries. And this leads to myoneural ischemia. A normal compartment pressure is 0 to 10 millimetres of mercury. Capillary blood flow is compromised over 20. And muscle and nerves are made ischemic at 30 to 40 millimetres of mercury. It's drilled into us that compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. So on history, the typical finding is progressive pain out of proportion to the nature of the injury, not relieved by immobilization or analgesia. And the typical examination finding is pain on passive stretch, which is the most sensitive finding prior to onset of ischemia within the compartment. Signs of established compartment syndrome are often described as the five Ps, pallor, pulseless, paralysis, paresthesia, and painlessness. But these are very late signs, and at this point, it may not be salvageable. It can be difficult to assess some polytrauma patients because they are sedated, have concomitant head injuries, and also children can be difficult to assess as well. There are some investigations that we can do for compartment syndrome. These are not indicated if you've made a clinical diagnosis of compartment syndrome. If you've clinically diagnosed it and you're suspicious, then you should proceed to fasciotomy. 
But as I've mentioned, some patients in trauma may be difficult to assess. So there is a way to measure the compartment pressures. The Stryker company has a tonometer that you can use that has a little um, needle that you can insert into the compartments or you can actually make your own using an 18-gauge needle attached to some intravenous extension tubing and then to a pressure monitor like an art line. And basically, you need to insert the needle into the compartment and zero the manometer uh, in order to assess the pressure in that compartment. And they say for fractures, you want to assess the pressures within five centimetres of the fracture site, and you need to obviously assess all of the compartments. And for patients that are not accessible, you should be checking these pressures every 30 minutes to one hour. So the definitive treatment for compartment syndrome is fasciotomy. I'm going to run through how to perform a fasciotomy for the leg, but compartment syndrome can occur in any myofascial compartment. So commonly in the thigh and the forearm are the other compartments affected, but it can occur anywhere. Preoperative preparation include making the decision to perform the fasciotomy in a timely manner. And in some situations, you may be performing this prophylactically, such as after reperfusing a limb after vascular surgery. This operation is described as a two incision, four compartment release. So your lateral incision is going to be releasing the anterior and lateral compartments and your medial incision is going to release the superficial posterior compartment and the deep posterior compartment. You're going to mark your incisions prior to making them. So starting laterally on the leg, the lateral incision runs from three fingers breaths below the fibula head and ends three fingers breaths above the lateral malleolus. You're going to dissect through the subcutaneous tissue and raise anterior and posterior flaps to expose the superficial fascia. In the lateral incision, the structure you need to be wary of is the superficial perineal nerve. The superficial perineal nerve is one of the terminal branches of the common perineal nerve, which passes from the popliteal fossa and around the neck of the fibula from posterior to lateral where it divides into the superficial and deep perineal nerves. The superficial perineal nerve passes downwards on the lateral surface of the fibula, but it actually pierces the fascia, the superficial fascia, halfway down the leg and becomes subcutaneous before passing over the extensor retinacular at the ankle. And this nerve is sensory to the lateral and medial aspect of the dorsal part of the foot. So when you're raising your subcutaneous flaps to expose the superficial fascia, you're going to actually see that nerve passing out through the intermuscular septum halfway down the leg, and you need to protect that throughout the rest of the procedure. So once you've exposed the fascia, you need to identify where the intermuscular septum is. Sometimes this is easy to see. It's described that you can make a transverse incision at about the midpoint of the uh, fascia so that you can actually see the intermuscular septum and you can use a little hemostat above and below it to identify it. You can also plant a flex and then in invert and evert the foot to see the different muscle compartments moving as well to confirm um, that you've found the intermuscular septum. You then want to divide the fascia of the anterior and lateral compartments. So through your lateral incision, you're going to access the anterior and the lateral compartments. And so you use 
Metzenbaum scissors with the tips curved away from the intermuscular septum, which will help protect the superficial perineal nerve. And you run the scissors up and down the fascia from your incision in order to open the full length of the fascia. And you want to see the muscle bulging out so that you know that you've released it. You then need to assess the viability of the muscle and healthy muscle that's alive is going to bleed and twitch when you put the diathermy on it. If there's dead muscle, then that needs to be debrided. For your medial incision, again, you're starting three fingers breaths below, but this time it's the tibial tuberosity, and you're going to extend it to three fingers breaths above the medial malleolus. And your incision line is about two centimeters behind the medial border of the tibia. You make your skin incision and again, then raise your superior and inferior flaps to expose the superficial fascia. The structure on this side that you need to be mindful of is the great saphenous vein, which is going to have the saphenous nerve running with it. And this runs in the subcutaneous tissues from just anterior to the medial malleolus and up the side of the leg uh, before it goes posteriorly around the knee. And so this is going to cross where you're dissecting. And again, you need to identify and protect that. Once you've done this, you are going to incise through the superficial fascia about a centimeter posterior to the medial aspect of the tibia. And you can make an incision using a knife and then again use the Metz and Borman scissors to extend your incision up and down. Once you've done this, this has released the superficial posterior compartment of the leg, and you also then need to release the deep posterior compartment of the leg. And the way you do this is you have to dissect the fibers of the gastrosoleus complex off the posterior aspect of the tibia, and you can use a periosteal elevator or a Cobb's elevator to basically scratch those fibers off the tibia, and that's how you then enter into the deep posterior compartment. Once you've completely released the compartments, again, assess for viability of the muscle. And in my institution, we would use a vac dressing to close the wound. And you'd be planning to try to do a staged closure once the edema had settled. Whenever you do a fasciotomy, you need to be thinking about reperfusion injury. So successful reperfusion of the limb is going to liberate the byproducts of muscle ischemia and cell necrosis. So this includes myoglobin from the muscle and potassium phosphate and different organic acids which are going to be released into the systemic circulation. This can cause acute hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, a metabolic acidosis and myoglobinuria. So this can lead to cardiac arrhythmias and acute kidney injury. So you need to be communicating with your anesthetist about what you're going to do and making sure they're keeping a close eye on the ECG tracer. And also if the patient has any red urine or you're concerned about the degree of necrosis of the muscle, then making sure you're hydrating that patient and aiming for a urine output of more than 100 mils an hour to avoid acute juvenile necrosis. And that completes this week's episode on burns, blast injuries, and extremity compartment syndrome. Thanks so much for joining me and Ben today. We've enjoyed your company. Please leave us a review so we know what you think about us as well. And remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast so that other people can find it.
It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!